I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello. Welcome to... Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I am the host of this show. My name is Brady Huggett. Welcome aboard. It's been a while since I released one of these. Uh, usually I get one of these out every other month. It's been about, I don't know, maybe two and a half months since since I put one out. Maybe three. I don't know. And it's not because I'm lazy. Uh, I was having trouble getting schedules lined up. I had about four guests I was juggling. You know, who is traveling, who isn't, when am I traveling, who's on vacation, is anyone going to be in New York, can I bring equipment to you, etc. But I can now say that I have a murderer's row of great guests lined up, starting with today's uh, Feng Zhang. So we recorded this in his office at MIT, at this table, just, you know, perfect for equipment. He had a mic close to him, a mic close to me, um, but there was an, an AC vent overhead, and it's summer, uh, you know, this was Boston in the summer, and it was definitely hissing away. I was able to pull most of that out in post-production. You can still hear a little burble in the background. And you have to do these on the road if you want to get great guests. So um, about Fung, I was digging out data on patents and papers for our annual look at the top translational researchers. And again and again, Fung's name showed up in the most cited papers. Now, that, that says something about the massive interest in CRISPR technology, of course. But it also says something about his abilities as a scientist. Um, so what do we talk about? Optogenetics, CRISPR technology, his immigration from China to Des Moines, Iowa as a boy, culture shock, uh, what it feels like to be running your own lab at 28. Uh, I love meeting him. I hope you get a chance to meet him one day because he's great to talk to. But before we get to that, I should say, and will say, that this podcast is sponsored by the Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program at Johns Hopkins University. Ten graduate courses in that program. Uh, it covers developing a biotech product. It covers launch strategies, leadership methods, and much more. It's a unique program. You can find out more by going to enterprise.jhu.edu. Thank you once again to Johns Hopkins for your support of this show. And let's pick the conversation up here where uh, Fung and I are talking about Jan Vilcek. Uh, of course, Jan has been on this show before. Um, he gives out. He started a foundation that gives that award every year honoring um, an immigrant for their contribution to sciences and one for an immigrant's contributions to the arts. And Fung was the winner for 2018. So here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Fung Zhang. So when they, do 
they call you and say, we're thinking about giving you this award, or do they call you and say, you've won this award, and now we want to talk to you about... I mean, I saw the video that they put, uh-huh. they made for to, to announce it. Right. Um, how, how did it work? Yeah, did... he, he called me, and he said, uh, you are receiving this award. Um, and I, I was really surprised, and, and it was a tremendous honor. Uh, it's a very special one, because uh, unlike other scientific prizes, this one recognizes uh, immigrants yeah and uh, and and also uh, you know all the all the difficulties that immigrants have to um, go through um, and recognizing that effort and also there are so many scientists who are immigrants yeah uh, to have an outlet to be able to recognize uh, that entire um, um, group of scientists and their contribution to science I think is really important yeah and then he, they broadened it to, to uh, art too right there's writers yeah. musicians yeah yeah, yeah. Who, who wanted for art uh, it was an architect. I forgot her name. Mm. Yeah, I have to look that up. Anyway, I saw the video. I thought the video was really, really well done. Mm. Um, okay, so what I want to ask about—I mean, I've done some research, but I, I want to okay. talk about um, where you were born first. Sure. Um, I was born in uh, the northern part of China, uh-huh. in a city called Shijiazhuang, and it's um, about two hours uh, south of Beijing uh, by train. And uh, and I grew up there until I finished fifth grade. Uh, and I moved to the U.S. Okay, now why, why did you move? Um, I moved here w- with my parents. Uh-huh. Uh, my mother was a visiting uh, scholar in, the, in Des Moines. Uh, sorry, my mother was a visiting scholar in Iowa uh, first. Uh, she was at the University of Dubuque. Um, and when she was here, she uh, visited one of the schools uh, in Iowa and saw that the educational system, the way that classes were uh, taught, uh, is very different from what she saw in China. She had, she visited a like a, a junior high or an elementary school or something. Yeah, she she visited a high school, and she saw that uh, the kids were given much more freedom. Uh-huh. Uh, there were uh, a lot more hands-on activities. Um, knowing that I like to take things apart, uh, she thought that uh, I might be able to um, really benefit from this type of uh, uh, education. So so she was here as a grad student or something or. She was uh, she was a visiting scholar, so yeah. um, she was here. Uh, she was teaching some computer science. Oh, oh, oh okay. Uh, also learning English at the same time, um, and she was going to go back to China afterwards uh, because she had a very good career. Uh, but then she thought um, uh, being able to give me this opportunity to receive a edu- receive an education in the U.S. Uh, would be uh, really good for me. So she made that sacrifice uh, to stay on uh, stay on in the U.S. Ah, okay, so. Um you, 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 your parents are married, you still are? Yeah, they are. And so she was by herself as a visiting scholar. That's right. You were still in China. Right. And did your father come with you? Uh, he came uh, when I came to the U.S. Okay, so then yeah. she, she basically stayed and said, well, you both come here and join me here. Yeah, she was, she was alone here um, in, the, in Iowa by herself for almost three years. Uh, part of that was so that she can uh, get um, uh, converted into a visa status so that uh, she could bring her family uh, uh-huh. to the U.S. So the, but the goal, um, when she first came here, the goal was not to eventually have everyone move to the U.S. It was just to teach and learn. And then as she saw the school, she thought, okay, I want right. to bring my family here. That's right. Right, okay. And so you, you said that you like to, they already knew that you like to take things apart, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did they know that? What were you, what were you taking apart? Um, probably everything that, that was pretty fun to me, uh, take apart uh, really, any objects, uh, radios, take apart um, different uh, tools that my father had. Um, really, just trying to f- figure out how things were put together and how they worked. So curious. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. So then this happens in after after fifth grade. After fifth grade. Okay. You moved to Des Moines. Mm-hmm. What are your memories of that? Um, it was uh, it, it was it was really a very nice experience uh, moving to uh, Des Moines. Um, so I didn't speak English at the time. Yeah. Um, I, I had learned uh, how to say hello, hello, how to say apple. Uh-huh. Uh, those the important words. Very like simple apple, things. Yeah. But then I really didn't speak the language. Uh, but when we moved to Iowa, when I moved to Iowa, uh, my mother had already made uh, friends with people who were uh, in Des Moines, uh-huh. and uh, and they just welcomed us with uh, really a lot of warmth and, and open arms, and uh, they helped us uh, settle in, help us find an apartment, um, and and so I felt very welcomed into the community, and then I enrolled in the public school, um, so I started in, mid- in middle school. Uh, because I didn't speak English, uh, they had a class uh, called English as a Second Language. Yeah, yeah. And so I was enrolled in that class. Uh, I was the only Chinese person there. Um, the only there, one in the school? Uh, in the whole school. And uh, there were other Asians. Uh, there were um, a number of Vietnamese students uh, who were refugees. Uh, and so we all started uh, in ESL um, oh, together. So, so how many? Ten? Less? Um, probably about 15. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. How big yeah. was the school? Uh, the school had... Maybe about two hundred students per class. Oh, per class, so yeah. almost a thousand for the whole. No, oh, no, no, it was no. three grades. Oh, three grades, yeah. right? Okay, so, so five, five, six hundred students. That's, that's fairly. It's a decent size, yeah. Yeah, and so okay. Can I ask you this? Did you want to move? Um, I didn't know um, either way. I just followed my parents. Um, they, it, they they didn't say, "All right, Fung, we're moving to the U.S." And you didn't say, "What about my friends here?" or whatever. You said, "Nah, it's." Fine. Um, I, I I think I wanted to be with my parents. Yeah. Uh, and and also I was uh, I, I think I was curious what what this new world is like. Yeah. Uh, certainly, it's very different from China. Oh sure. When you first showed up, do you remember having like you know these moments of confusion or culture shock or anything like that? I think one of the the most um, memorable things is uh, it's very empty. Uh, in China, you would walk down the street and you will see people everywhere. Yeah. Um, so. There's always people around, but then landing in Iowa, um, you know, uh, getting into a car and driving down the street, uh, really not seeing anyone walking outside. Uh, you see some cars, but yeah. uh, for the most part, it's very quiet and, and empty. Um, that was very different. And what about your father? Did he did he mind the move? I mean, that's a big upheaval too. Um, I think he also had to adjust uh, as well. Culturally, it's different. He didn't really speak English English either. Yeah. Uh, so he had to to learn that. Um, what, what did he do here? When he moved, um, when he, moved he, he he worked at um, a uh, a factory uh, that was in Des Moines, uh, and the factory was assembling different types of electronics, and um, and so he worked there. What has what had his job been in in China? He was an administrator in a in a university. Ah, so university in, in China. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's a big change for him too. Mm-hmm. Right. Did, did that bother him at all? Um, I, I'm sure it, it bothered him. Um, he also had friends that were back home. Uh, and then moving to a new place, I think there's quite a bit of adjustment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so th- you, you have no siblings? No brothers or sisters? Um, no, just only child. I, I wanted to ask, um, do you think that, let's say you had two brothers or a brother and a sister or something, do you mm-hmm. think that your family would have moved here? Or was it be kind of like, well, we have one child, let's see if we can give this child as every advantage that we can? That's a good question. It's, it's, it's hard to know what my parents would have decided, but I think they probably would have moved um, given the opportunity. Uh, because for I think for my parents and really for most Chinese families, education comes first, um, and and their kids come first, and so whenever there's opportunity for their kids to 
to become more educated, to get better instructions. Uh, I think most Chinese families will probably uh, probably do that. Um, I went to Beijing recently, so I've been uh, studying up a little bit. And um, it seemed, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me like as China was opening up in the 80s or so, mm-hmm. there was a big focus from the government down saying, if you want to do well, you should study the sciences, you should study math. Uh, that's the way to sort of get ahead mm-hmm. in not only China, but the broader world. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I think very much so. So I was born in 1981, uh-huh. and um, so growing up in that period, that's when China just began to open up. And and really, there was a lot of emphasis on science and technology. Uh, you will see um, uh, clips on TV of rockets launching and, and satellites um, uh, sort of circling around uh, the planet. And, and it was really the emphasis on high technology, um, innovations, inventions that can help uh, advance the, the society and, and make people's lives better. Uh-huh. That was very much in the air uh, um, when I was growing up. And do you think that that, I mean, as you said, you like to take things apart. Do you think that was just inherent in you or did part of this concept of, well, science is important, uh, I should study science, mm-hmm. was it a combination of things that got I'm, you? I'm sure it was a combination of, of both. Yeah. Um, my parents were both uh, trained as engineers. Um, so... Uh, and growing up in, in a household where they were both engineers, uh, they, my mother worked in computers, um, and we had computers uh, around. And so kind of growing up in that environment, um, I think certainly had a big influence on me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So back, back to your, you're in fifth grade. No, you're in sixth grade now. You're taking English as a second language. Um, you're picking up English pretty quickly? I, I don't know. Um, I, think, I think okay. Um, yeah, I, I remember maybe after the first year... Uh, then I was um, starting to... So, so when I first arrived, um, I spent about half of each day in ESL. Ah, okay. Um, just learning English. And then I would take maybe math and a couple of other classes, physical education and, and so forth, with, uh, with uh, everybody uh, in the school. Yeah, and things like math, because math is really applicable without right. the language almost, right? right. The, yeah, okay. The, the symbols and, yeah. and yeah. the numbers, I think, you can recognize. Yeah. And then by seventh grade, um, I think I was taking just one ESL class uh, for one for, for an hour, uh, and then the rest of the, the day would be integrated with the rest of the, the classes. Uh, so, I, and then by eighth grade, uh, I was entirely taking normal classes um, and no, no more ESL. Do, do you remember, um, you know, a moment where suddenly? Uh, you, you, so when you moved here, it must have been kind of just this wall this language barrier, this wall of English that you couldn't really get through. But do you remember a point where suddenly, you know, walking down the street, you heard conversations and you started, you understood everything around you. Do you remember that? Um, I think I, w- I was very fortunate. Um, I think, I think sort of growing up in Iowa as an immigrant, um, I was really fortunate with the education system there. Um, so even though I didn't speak English, um, and, and there were a lot of other, um, Foreigners who didn't speak English in the school, uh, they actually had interpreters for the students. Uh, one of the interpreters, um, his name is Mr. Kangping, mm-hmm. and uh, he spoke eight languages. Good Lord. And, and one of the eight languages was Chinese. His, actually, his Chinese was not as good as mine, but he spoke just enough so that he can uh, help me understand what the teachers are saying uh, in the beginning. And that really helped tremendously. I remember looking forward, because he's not there every day. Uh-huh. Uh, he would go to different schools uh, to help uh, other kids. 
Uh, so he would show up maybe one day a week or two days a week. And I remember that I would look forward to the days when he was there because that mean I, I could understand more things. Yeah, yeah. He, he, so he spoke eight languages and would just go around tutoring all these children. Mm-hmm. That's kind of remarkable. Yeah, so when we, so we, took, we spent half the day in ESL and then half of the day in other classes. He would come with us when we go to other classes. Um, and then he would um, kind of sit uh, sit right next to us. Uh-huh. Um, and whenever a teacher says something, he would check in with us to make sure that we understood everything. Yeah. yeah. So at, at what point, okay, you're still enjoying taking things apart, I guess. Maybe you still are taking things apart at this age. Mm-hmm. But um, I know this is really early. But were you beginning to think, okay, uh, I'd like to do something in science? I don't know what aspect. I mean, if your parents are engineers, maybe you're thinking about engineering. I don't know. I, I, I think growing up, I was really interested in computer science. Um, Sort of working on a computer, programming, uh, figure out how uh, how you can sort of build things on the, on a computer, um, and then I think I was always interested in science and knew I wanted to uh, to do something related to the sciences uh, as I was growing up, science or engineering, and then uh, it was really uh, dream middle school. Um, uh, it was I think either seventh grade or eighth grade. Um, I went to a Saturday uh, class. Uh, so the Des Moines Public School had these Saturday enrichment programs where uh, some classes would teach students how to use Photoshop, other ones on Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Uh, th- but there was one class on molecular biology. So I remember looking at a pamphlet and seeing the different classes, and my mother was asking me if I wanted to go to one of them. Uh, I saw molecular biology, and I really didn't know what it was. Uh, but I was curious what it is, so I asked my mom to help me sign up for the class. So it was going to that class, uh, both meeting the teacher there and also learning um, the, the different things that the teacher was so excited about that began to open my imagination uh, in terms of what biology could be. Um, they also had us watch Jurassic Park, yeah. uh, which was um, really a very entertaining movie, but at the same time, um, a lot of the concepts in there really resonated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean like finding, what did they find? An insect encased in amber or something, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. They, they found that there's a mosquito who um, oh, it had blood stung in it. a dinosaur, yeah, yeah, had yeah. blood, but that was um, totally encapsulated in a piece of amber. And then they can uh, drill into the amber, uh, extract the dinosaur blood, sequence the DNA, Build uh, the reconstruct the DNA, yeah. um, fuse with um, an egg, and then, and then recreate a dinosaur. Um, the, the detail with which that science fiction was told, uh, that process, and, and also having the teacher explain that to us, each one of those steps, uh, just made it seem like this is not too far uh, in the distant future. Yeah, yeah, right. You realize that building a dinosaur from scratch would be hard, but right. the concept is yeah. sound, right? Yeah, right. and, and right. There's, a, there's a kind of, uh, I mean, I've talked to a lot of scientists about there's a kind of magic to it. That's right. right. That's, for children, that's very... Engaging, think, wow, you could yeah. sort of find this thing, pull this out of a mosquito, and then boom, you have you have Jurassic Park after that. Yeah, yeah. and it's not really just magic; it's it's breaking it down so that you can feel that this is possible. It's not just some very far distant uh, goal that you don't really know how to get there. It's, yeah, uh, but rather you can kind of see the individual steps and and feel that okay, each one of these steps is not is not unrealistic. Um, yeah. And also with with the teacher explaining. Uh, that some of these steps are actually reality, uh, like scientists are doing this in their laboratories. Uh, that just makes you feel that uh, biology is really at this cusp of being able to uh, do so many things and, and being able to uh, 
uh, understand the instruction for biology, uh-huh. understand the DNA, understand the genome, and be able to use that information to do something that would improve our lives, um, that just seemed really, really powerful. So from that point on, did you sort of change what you thought you might want to... I mean, that's early to be saying that, but as a sixth grade, you're suddenly thinking, well, I want to study biology in some form. I definitely wanted to study biology more. Um, and and um, I, I remember um, that um, before it was all computers, but then I, I started to develop this curiosity for things that are uh, besides just computers. Um, I, To be honest, I didn't like biology before that class because... Um, I remember in seventh grade life science class, uh, the assignment was to take a really smelly frog, uh, frog and yeah. dissect it, yeah. uh, identify, pull out different uh, organs and ident- identify the different an- anatomical parts. That was not so interesting because it was all rote memorization. Yeah. Uh, but then um, this molecular biology class really taught me that biology is becoming more like an engineering discipline. Um, we can understand how it works and then go from those basic principles um, kind of in a problem-solving way, uh, go step-by-step step and, and do something that's, that's uh, useful. So this, um, this school that you were going to, what, what's the name of the school? Uh, Calumet Middle School. Ah, okay. Did, or even the high school beyond that, did they have the facilities to really fully engage you from that point on? The school, so my, my, my public school didn't. Um, but then when I was, uh, when I was a sophomore, uh, in high school, um, my science teacher, the same teacher who taught that Saturday enrichment class, uh-huh. uh, came to me. He said, uh, I remember you were in my class and you were interested in molecular biology. Uh, let me tell you about a, a potentially really exciting opportunity. So in Des Moines, uh, there is a hospital called the Iowa Methodist Hospital. And they had a research uh, division. Um, and within that division, there was a human gene therapy research institute. Wow. And so the whole hospital uh, had a program called the Corporate Academic Program, CAP. And it was taking high school students who wanted to learn something uh, that's like learn vocational skills. Um, so they were already taking students who uh, worked in accounts receivable or worked in the reception desk or worked in um, uh, delivery and, and or shadowing uh, anesthesiologists, uh, different aspects of how healthcare works. Yeah. But then um, my teacher said, um, since they also have this other division, you might be able to request to work in the gene therapy lab uh, as a part of this corporate academic vocational program. But so let me get this. This is about 1990? This is 19, 80... uh, probably 1996. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was, it was one of the few uh, gene therapy labs around the country. And they were uh, building uh, viral vectors um, to be able to treat cancer. And, um, and, and they were open, open-minded enough to take high school volunteers. And uh, so I thought I was going to just wash dishes or, yeah, yeah. you know, Pipettes un- or something. Un- unpack boxes and yeah. stuff. Uh, but it turned out that uh, they paired us with scientists uh, in the gene therapy lab. So I was really fortunate to be paired with the mentor that I work with, uh, Dr. John Levy. Uh-huh. And, um, and he was um, extremely curious, but also very patient um, and, and really good communicator of science. Uh, he would work with me, um, sit down with me um, every day, uh, and just explain all sorts of interesting biology to me. You mean um, the things that you were about to work on, or just concepts in general? Just concepts in general. Huh. So at this gene therapy lab, I would go there after school every day, 
Uh, so school will get out around maybe 155 or 2, uh-huh. and I'll get to the gene therapy lab, which is not too far away from, from my school, uh, by 2.30. And then um, I had my project to work on there. Uh, but then at 4, um, the whole lab would have tea. So people would go into the, to the lunch kitchen room, and then most people would just grab a cookie, pour a cup of tea yeah. or coffee, and then go back to their work. But John was very patient. Um, he would just sit there in the break room um, next to the kitchen, and and there would be scraps of paper around, and he would take out a pen and just start to explain all sorts of things. Signal transduction. He would explain to me what DNA is, how how cells replicated, uh, the different the different phases of the cell cycle, um, and and it was just incredible learning opportunity. And at the time, I didn't know how fortunate I was, but. Since then, um, every day when I think about it, every time I think about well, that, I just, yeah. I just, um, I just so appreciative and, and just realize how incredible um, that experience was. Do you, at some point, I mean, was he calling you over every day, or at some point you must have just been looking for him in the tea room to say, "Let's keep talking about these things you're telling me." Well, I liked him because he would he would tell me stuff. Yeah, uh, and I like to listen to people um, explain things. Yeah, uh, and I can ask him questions of things that I didn't understand. And, and that was just really, really, really fun. Um, he, he was really good at explaining things. He can always put a complicated concept uh, in a story uh, narrative yeah. and just explain to me uh, in very simple uh, terms. So, so that made learning biology and also at the same time working on those concepts that he explains to me uh, really memorable. Do, are you still in touch with him? Um, I haven't talked to him in, in, in just a little while, but... but in general, uh, yes. Yeah, in general, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, so then you're getting close to graduation and you're thinking about college, mm-hmm. right? I mean, did, did you have any idea of where you want to go or how to apply? Were people helping you? It sounds like maybe um, some of these people might have had ideas of where you might go. Yeah, I, I thought I wanted to do research when I get to college. And, and because I was having so much fun working in the gene therapy lab, I thought it would be great to uh, continue to do research uh, in, in college. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, w- I would talk to different people and figure out um, which, um, which places would be good for doing research, uh, which professors would be good to work at. Uh, so another thing that happened is um, when I was finishing my junior year in high school, I got admitted to a summer program at MIT. It was called the Research Science Institute. Ah. And this is a program that brings together 50 kids from around the U.S. Uh-huh. and then 30 kids from uh, around the world, uh, altogether 80 kids, and we'll spend about six weeks working at MIT. And so from that program, I started to get to know the Boston area and, and how exciting of a place it is for, for science yeah. and for research. Yeah. And so then for college, I, I, I was fortunate to be admitted to Harvard. Uh, and then I decided to, to go there. Well, that's why, right? You were you were sort of falling in love with Boston. You thought, well, I should go to school there. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then you came up came up to Harvard. So um, in in college, I majored in chemistry and physics. Uh-huh. Um, I I felt that I wanted to have a solid foundation in the in the basics of science. Uh-huh. I thought that biology was was really exciting, but it was developing so quickly. Uh, the things that I was learning as a freshman, by the time I was graduating, uh, it would probably have been updated. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, rather rather than learning something in my classes that, that's changing so fast, uh, maybe you just learn things that don't change anymore. Uh, so, I, so I focus <laughs> on chemistry and physics and uh, try to kind of build a solid foundation in, in, the, uh, in, in, in those areas. Uh-huh. Uh, but then after classes, I would work in a lab. Oh, okay. And, and so I uh, worked in biology labs. 
um, I, I first started out in the crystallography lab working with Don Wiley, uh-huh. um, sort of look, uh, looking at using X-ray crystallography to study how proteins were shaped. Uh, and then after that, I then joined um, another lab by uh, Eugene Shaknovich. So he was doing computational um, uh, biology using physical methods to predict how proteins would fold. Um, and then uh, during the last uh, two and a half years of college, uh, I worked with Xiao Wei Zhuang, uh, uh-huh. who, um, who invented the STORM uh, super-resolution microscopy, and then joined her lab to learn how to use imaging uh, to be able to visualize biological processes. And I think that the whole series of ex- um, experiences um, sort of further made me excited about working in biological research. But the, you're doing these things outside of your classes. Mm-hmm. You're just doing them. You're helping out with experiments. You're listening. You're learning. And yeah. then beyond that, you're taking your classes, getting your grades, et cetera, moving toward graduation. That's right. Okay. So you're just really right. rounding out your education, both officially and, and unofficially. Yeah. Um, and and I, I wanted to be able to tinker with things. Yeah. And so being able to work in the lab uh, gave me that opportunity to to take things apart and and, and, and try out some experiments. Did you do anything else beyond science when you were growing <laughs> up? That's not a negative, but it sounds like every uh-huh. free moment you had, you were sort of learning some new angle of science, whether you're just going to get a base of chemistry and physics or you're going to uh-huh. go into the lab in your spare time. I mean, did you do other things? Yeah, I, I, I did other things too. Um, I think I had a very um, good group of friends when I was growing up uh, in Iowa. Uh-huh. And so uh, sometimes you, you get inspired by what your friends are doing. And so, for example, in high school, I joined the debating. Oh, yeah. Um, and I would um, sort of, I did both uh, policy debate as well as Lincoln-Douglas debate um, and, um, and, extent, and extemporaneous speaking. And, and that was a really good experience. Yeah. Um, learning how to, to construct logical arguments and, and, um, and present in front of other people. Um, and taking trips on the weekend to uh, different debate tournaments and bonding with uh, fellow uh, teammates Debaters, yeah. uh, during, during those uh, um, events, that, that was really fun. I was also in the Boy Scouts. Oh, yeah. Uh, so on the weekends, sometimes not going to debate tournaments, we would go to camping. Uh, so we went to um, the border of uh, Canada, between Canada and Minnesota, oh. uh, to this place called Ely, Minnesota. And we, uh, we built an igloo and we slept in it. Uh, oh, you were in the winter? Yeah, winter in the winter. Winter yeah. camping can be quite fun, actually. Yeah. Um, so, so that was really fun. And, and there were a lot of those kind of things that I did. Um, and that, that was really fun. It helped me to learn more about the American culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and also really build long-lasting um, uh, relationships with people. Yeah. 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 Okay, so then from Harvard, you go to Stanford, right? For, mm-hmm. This is for graduate school? For PhD, graduate school. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, how, how did that happen? How did you um, make the transfer? You worked with so, uh, Carl Deseroth, right? That's right. Did you know him in advance? No, I didn't. Um, so when I was graduating from college, I, I wanted to continue to do research. And so I, I was looking at different schools um, um, and, and thinking about where to go. And one of the things that excited me about Stanford is that it was in the Silicon Valley. Uh-huh. Um, growing up, because I was interested in computers, um, I, I was really inspired by uh, all of the technologists who were able to use technology to build something that um, helps to change the world. Um, so people like Bill Gates or uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, and, and, they all, and, and a lot of the computer advances happen in Silicon Valley. So I thought it would be, it would be fun and probably inspiring to be in that environment. Uh, and so, that, so I chose Stanford, um, uh, just so that I can be in the Silicon Valley and, 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 and learn from, from that area. 
was it fun and inspiring to be around? It that? was. It was. Um, it was really eye opening and, and mind opening, uh, and also uh, there were just so many people who are uh, both smart but also really want to make an impact. Uh, they were not just wanting to be smart because they want to be smart, but yeah. because they want to put their knowledge into something that's useful. Um, how do we build a new biomedical device? How do we build a new uh, technology information tool that can help people organize information or help people um, be able to uh, communicate with other people? Um, so another really exciting thing uh, that happened is uh, around the time when Web 2.0 uh, was just uh, getting off the ground, uh -huh. um, that was when I first moved to Stanford. And so within the school, there was... I think Stanford always has this entrepreneurial DNA uh, in, in the environment. Yeah. But um, because of Web 2.0 and also the accessibility of the technology uh, for so many people to be able to do something in that area, um, there was a particular sense of energy and excitement uh, that was in the environment. Um, and that energy did not just stay in the web, um, web or information technology area. It kind of bled into biotech and, and medical devices and all those things as well. And so kind of uh, getting a chance to immerse myself in that environment and meeting other friends who uh, build um, interesting um, projects and are trying to launch them into exciting products for, for other people to use, uh, that was very inspiring and, and a great time to, uh, uh, to be there. Was that the first time that you had sort of begun to think about uh, not just, okay, I'm going to do research, I'm going to discover new things, but I want, I want to apply it somehow. Stanford is the thing that sort of changed your thinking around that? Um, I think I've always wanted to do something that's useful. I think even in college, I, I remember we would stay up late uh, with friends and uh, just brainstorming about uh, what are some of the things that would be fun to, to work on. Uh, I remember entering into the MIT uh, 50K competition, which is a startup competition uh -huh. uh, with an idea to build a device that helps us locate friends who are nearby uh, based on uh, Bluetooth communication uh -huh. uh, between these different devices. And um, so I've always wanted to, to do something that. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That would take, that would allow us to innovate something and then take that innovation. Uh, and use it to build something, something that's useful. Yeah. Um, and so going to Stanford, uh, there were just even more people like that. Yeah, you and, found and your that, tribe. And that was, that was yeah. just phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you studied, I think, optogenetics, right? <laughs> um, so, but I, I don't really know how you got from Stanford back to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me? Sure. Um, so at Stanford, um, Stanford was a great place, and, and Carl Dyseroth was a phenomenal advisor and mentor. Uh, so I worked with Carl uh, to develop the optogenetics technology. And around that time, um, we were, uh, I was trying different things with, with friends. And so one of the projects that we built was um, a project that we called SP1. Uh-huh. Uh, it stands for, it's actually taken from uh, my, my high school molecular biology mentor's phrase. He said, Feng, you should always do something that's on the sexy side of practical. Um, and I, I remember that phrase because... Um, as, as a teenager, it was, it was you know kind of uh, kind of a curious, geeky kind of free phrase. But, yeah. um, but I remember that what he really meant is that you should do something that's useful for people, uh, but at the same time you want to you wanted to have a certain like style. exciting, yeah, 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 yeah. And so so we called one of our side projects. This this was a, a venture that we tried to work on. Um, SP one uh, stands for sexy and practical one. <laughs> And uh, we, we were thinking that maybe after this is done, we'll have SP2 and SP3 and so right, forth. Right. So SP1 was was a was a idea to engineer algae, uh, which are the cells that we develop channel adoption uh, from for optogenetic purposes. Uh, rather than doing that, uh, engineer algae to convert CO2 and sunlight uh, into biofuel, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, algae can grow with carbon dioxide and grow with sunlight. And and if you can in, if you can engineer the molecular pathway in there, then they can produce uh, fatty acids or they yeah. can produce isoprenoids, all sorts of different things to uh, make fuel. So that was a project that worked uh, worked on around 2008, and uh, Carl was very supportive to let me to try these things uh, on the side um, as as uh, fun projects. Um, and there was also uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a big biofuel push then too, right? Yeah, it was everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And uh, so it was a, a great time um, to be doing that. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of people that we could talk to and, and also made a lot of really uh, good friends uh, from working on those kinds of projects. Mm-hmm. But then as we were think, uh, as me and my friends were thinking about what to do um, as we were sort of getting ready to graduate and so forth, um, one possibility was to continue to, to work on these uh, ideas. But then the financial, um, uh, the economy, the financial sector, really took a plunge yeah, around 2008. Yeah, and yeah. so it wasn't very um, clear whether or not we were going to be able to raise more funds to, to work on that idea. And so that led me to, uh, to think about maybe I'll stay in academia. And, um, and, and I was then um, invited to apply for a position at the Harvard Society Fellows. And, uh, and fortunately, I got uh, admitted there. Uh, and then that's what brought me back to, to Boston. Okay. Um, but, but my friend who, um, who worked on uh, SP1 with me, uh, he continued uh, to build startups. And, uh, and after a couple of turns, he uh, eventually built a company called Pinterest. Pinterest. And, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so, so that that just tells you the the type of amazing people that are there. Uh, that that yeah. are there. Um, okay, so then you came back to Harvard. I, I know you, you know you got married at some point, but I don't know when or how you met your wife. How did that happen? Um, we we met each other at Stanford. Oh, you did. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, and then uh, she also moved to the East Coast with you. Uh, well, did you. Did you get married on the West no, Coast? Uh, we, no, we got married uh, in in, uh, in 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 Boston. She's also a scientist. Uh, she was a scientist, but then she um, went uh, went to work at a biomedical device company called Synthesis in Philadelphia. Uh, she was there for a little while as a um, as a R and D person. Uh, no, she was working the, on the business side. Oh, so okay. she was in a kind of a management training program, uh-huh. uh, working in different stages uh, of the company. Um, and then she moved to Boston and then went to Sloan Business School. Um, and um, and so that that's how we met uh, back at Stanford. Okay, but then when you moved to Boston, she was in Philly. She was initially in Philly, and then and, and you then were she, still together. You just were seeing each other when you could see yeah, each other. Something, that's right. and eventually she. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll take the Amtrak down to the Philly. Yeah. Or yeah. fly down, or yeah. So when did you get when did you get married? Um, in 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just when I when I when I first started at, at MIT and Broad, uh, that's also when I, when we got married. Yeah. You, anything to say about that? It's the best moment of your life? No, it is. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's incredible. I think um, I think one of the I, I think one of the things that's really important to me is family. Yeah, and also to be able to uh, find someone who shares the same values and um, and to be able to build a family together. Uh, and also, you know, uh, um, your wife um, or my wife also is you know my best friend. Yeah, uh, who yeah, yeah. I can. Uh, talk to about many different things, um, and and I think having that partnership and having that person there who can support and understand uh, is really important. And then my parents are there too. Uh, where? Uh, my parents are now in Boston. They, oh, they are. Been, uh, helping us. I will have two little kids, so they. Yeah. They oh, so help then us. they moved up. Yeah. With the kids. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is what's her background? Is is she? Um... She was um, she was studying mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering, uh, but then she um, she decided she wanted to. Uh, transition to kind of working at the intersection of business and yeah. biotech. Yeah, so now she's in the business part of some, mm-hmm. probably some biotech around here. I don't know. Um, she's actually at home now because um, our two little kids, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, she's helping to, to bring Do you them have up. a boy, girl, two boys, two girls? One boy and one girl. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And they're pretty young, I think? They're pretty young. Uh, four and one. Oh, one. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah you got a lot <laughs> going on. All right. Um, okay, so you're here working at Harvard. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, well, just take me through what happens next. I mean, we're getting near a CRISPR discovery, I'm assuming. Sure. So I started um, as a junior fellow, um, and I, I worked with uh, both George Church and also Paula Arlotta. Yeah. And that's when I started to become interested in genome engineering. Um, when I first got started, I wanted to have a way to uh, make optogenetics work better. Uh, and one of the ways to do that is to have a way to introduce this opsin gene into anywhere you want in the genome uh, in a specific way. So I thought maybe genome editing uh, would make that work yeah. uh, more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, to explore what the genome editing technologies are. And so one of the first uh, ones that I uh, looked into was zinc finger nucleases. Yeah. So I started to tinker with that. Uh, but it turned out that zinc finger was very hard to, to use. It was hard to manipulate. And if you wanted to recustomize that to uh, modify somewhere else in the genome, uh, it was just very cumbersome to do, and I couldn't do it very well at all. And so I thought maybe there could be other ways to do it. And um, and so one of the th- papers that I read when I was just uh, browsing through journals uh, was a paper on the TAIL system. 
um, it was just it was just recently published in Science at the time, and uh, and it described a new type of protein domain that can bind DNA, and so I thought if this can bind to DNA um, in in plants, uh, can we use this um, to bind arbitrary DNA sequences in the human genome? Mm-hmm. And if we can, then we can attach things uh, like nucleases or transcription activators uh, to be able to turn genes on or to be able to modify the genome. Um, because the way that tails are organized is much simpler compared to zinc finger protein, I thought this could be a, a, a nice alternative to the zinc finger nucleus technology. So as a junior fellow uh, working with George and Paula, um, I uh, worked on trying to get tail uh, into a, a usable form so that we can use it to uh, uh, perturb the human genome. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and I spent about um, maybe a year doing that um, at, at Harvard, and, and that worked out pretty well. So in fact, I, I published my, my first independent research paper in Nature Biotechnology, um, and, uh, and, and that was a, a really fun uh, project to work on. So around that time, um, I was offered uh, a, a position at MIT uh-huh. um, to be able to start my own lab. And so I... Um, and I'm sorry, how old were you at this point? I think I was 28 or 29. Yeah, that's, that's young, no, for a lab? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I was very fortunate to, to, yeah, keep, I mean, to do, be given the opportunity. When you look at that now, sort of, do you think, wow, I, I, um, mm-hmm. that's young for me to start a lab. How did I even know what I was doing? Or, or uh, mm-hmm. did, you, you must have looked around and understood that of all the labs that you've been in, you're sort of one of the younger people to have one. Yeah, I think I was on the younger side, and um, and I was ex- I was excited about the opportunity. Yeah. Um, because um, having well, first of all, um, when you when you're offered a, a position to start a lab, it means that other people trust you. Yeah. Um, they have confidence yeah. that um, you might be able to do something. Yeah. Um, and so to to get that kind of endorsement um, is very exciting, and and of course at the same time it's very very daunting um, because. You know, every I think everybody, or at least I, I sometimes feel that I have this imposter syndrome, where I, I worry maybe I just really lucked out. Um, yeah, but, a few times and yeah, but at some point you you don't luck out again and again and again, right? There's something that's leading you to luck out, as you say, right? Well, I, I think I, that's the rational way of thinking about it. Yeah. But but you know, it it, it never uh, you always or you always feel that um, that you know. Uh, you have to challenge yourself and, and, and see can you can you can you do something more? Continue, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. So you're 28. You're like, mm-hmm. great. Okay, these people believe that I can run this lab. I'm, yeah. I guess I can run this lab. I'm, mm-hmm. I know I can run this lab. Yeah. And you start your lab. Great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I started my lab, and um, and uh, initially I was thinking of using the tail system uh, to study uh, brain, study uh, neurobiology questions. But then I was, as I was working with students to start to apply the tail system. Um, it turned out that it was very hard to teach people to use it. Yeah, um, it's cumbersome, and even for a student who knows uh, quite a bit of molecular biology techniques, uh, it's still a whole project to be able to just build the tails uh, before they can move on to to do neurobiology. And so, it was around that time that I I was just wondering, could there be other interesting things uh, that I can work on? But so, um, you, I mean, you gave that up not because it. It wouldn't work, but because it was going to be difficult to work with, right? Yeah, and you I, couldn't train enough people to really attack it in mass, right? It just wasn't wasn't a scalable, yeah. Um, it wasn't a good solution, yeah. Okay. And so I was 
wondering, could there be other solutions?、Uh, nature gave us zinc finger proteins. Nature gave us tail proteins. Could there be other、uh, things? And so, I remember、uh, this was just shortly after I started at at Broad.、Uh, I went to the annual uh, scientific uh, board of counselor meeting, and、um, and there, one of the Broad、um, associate members. Uh, Mike Gilmore. He was presenting his research on enterococcus bacteria. He was doing genome、uh, sequencing of these bacteria and and analyzing them. And he just made a, a casual comment that, by the way,、um, as we were looking at virulence genes or other、uh, processes in these bacteria, we also saw that they have CRISPRs. And these are interesting nucleases that、um, they are interesting to, to talk about some other time.、Um, that、uh, people are now starting to understand. Yeah.、Um, When he mentioned the word nuclease,、um, that really just captured my、uh, my attention because I was thinking about tail nucleases, zinc、uh, finger nucleases, and I was thinking about how can you make nucleases work better.、Um, so I when I then went to look up what CRISPRs are, and when I started to read、uh, the papers around CRISPR,、um, I remember reading a paper by a Canadian researcher.、Uh, his name is Sylvain Moynou.、Uh, he had just published a few months before that talk. Uh, that Cas9、um, is a RNA-guided DNA endonuclease.、Um, so when I saw that paper, I thought, "Wow, this is、um, pretty pretty cool.、Um, can we can we harness this、um, so that it cleaves DNA in human cells?、Uh, can we use RNA to direct it to cleave、uh, the human genomic DNA?、Yeah. Uh, if that works, then it will be so much simpler than tail.、Um, we don't have to go through multi-step ligations to、um, make a new tail protein. We can just Uh, go online and order a new oligo、uh, that would encode the RNA sequence,、um, and and so. Well, so, let me ask you: When you said you started reading papers about CRISPR, there、mm-hmm. couldn't have been very many at that point, no? Or were there?、Uh, and and that that's the best part. It was a fairly new field at the time,、uh, and you can probably get up to speed with the field by reading fifteen. I was going to say twenty papers. Then you've got your hands around the whole the whole field of study at that moment. Right. Yeah.、Huh. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it was very exciting. I remember. Right after that meeting,、um, I then went to uh, uh, Florida for a conference.、Uh, it was a Nature conference on epigenetics.、Um, because I was so excited, I just stayed in my hotel room,、um, reading papers, reading papers <laughs> rather than、uh, than going to the meetings.、Um, but 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 then、uh, it, it was just very exciting. Yeah.、Um, yeah. Okay. Well, so then, so then, what happens? I mean, you've got you think, okay, well, this I might be able to do it with with CRISPR Cas9 in particular.、Right. What happens then? So then, so then, it was a matter of、um, uh, trying to understand everything, and then and then start to design experiments、uh, to see、uh, can we use this to be able to、um, target DNA in human cells. Yeah.、Um, I had done work on translating、uh, kind of bacterial or microbial systems into、uh, mammalian cells.、Um, so optogenetics was. About taking algal、um, or cyano、uh, or uh, or uh, archaeal proteins,、mm-hmm. and then、uh, introducing that into neurons, so that、uh, by making them work, you can control neuronal activity. So I thought、um, maybe、uh, we can try to transplant some of these CRISPR systems、uh, into human cells.、Um, so Cas9、um, was was identified, and so you can go online and, and look up the sequences for Cas9. You can look up the sequences for these CRISPR systems. Um, and then,、uh, and, and so you can start to synthesize some of these and engineer it to、um, to see can you、uh, successfully reconstitute the system in a human cell to be able to target different sequences. And yes, you could. And you could, yeah. yeah. And so you published that. And then we eventually published that. Yeah. And、um, and 
Yeah, it was a seminal paper. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean it was a. I would call it a seminal paper. Would you call it that? Um, I, I think I think it was a. I, I'm proud of the paper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. I think I think uh, I think I think what 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 I'm most proud of is is that it's it's useful. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it being is able to help people. Yeah. A lot of people. Right? right. I mean, the field. I mean, if you went to read CRISPR papers now, you mm-hmm. would it would take you I don't know years to get your hands around all the papers that are out there now in CRISPR. Yeah. So yeah, it's exploded. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about. Uh, uh, Editas, founding Editas. Mm. So this was this was the first time you'd founded a company, right? Um, and I want to talk about how you did that. Um, mm-hmm. Whose idea was it? How did you learn how yeah. to do it? Um, right. you know, just take me through those steps. Um, I think one of the the nice things about Boston is that there are a lot of mentors uh, who have uh, founded successful companies and and who are also very generous and willing to um, to help you um, uh, help new people, uh, young people. Uh, to start uh, their companies, so I think the the idea behind Editas um, uh, started before um, we published our paper. Oh, it did. So, yeah. oh, okay. And so when I was at Stanford, um, uh, Mark Levin, who is uh, the founding partner of Third Rock Venture, yeah. uh, went to Stanford uh, to meet uh, Carl Dyserath in, in our lab. Uh, he was interested at the time to build a company around optogenetics. Um, they eventually didn't uh, do that, but uh, that's when I first met him. Ah, okay. And so when I went back to when I came back to Boston, um, and they saw that I had published a tail paper, uh, they had invited me to one of their partner meetings, um, and uh, and there they talked about um, uh, they asked me to tell them about gene, uh, gene editing and using tail uh, nucleases to be able to modify sequences. And and that's when I also mentioned to them that there's something called CRISPR. That I was going to say, did you say, look, I've been working with it. It's really yeah. hard to work with, and maybe that isn't the thing we should yeah. do, but maybe we should do right. this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so after our paper was published, so, 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 so from then I knew that they were interested in gene editing and considering um, sort of therapeutic opportunities in that area. So then after we published our paper, um, I uh, connected with them again. And, uh, and, and that's when we... Uh, be, began to more seriously uh, think about can we put the company together. So then I worked with a couple of people um, who were uh, associates at Third Rock. Yeah. Um, so that Palestrant and also Agnieszka um, uh, Chekhov, and um, and so we worked together to try to see can we can we put a a plan together um, to see how a genetic company would look. And I remember uh, we we would go to. Um, Meetings together, uh, where we went to, for example, the human, uh, the 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 um, American uh, gene and cell therapy meeting, uh, to to just kind of talk to people and try to uh, see uh, can we put a, uh, a a solid idea together to found a company. That took a while of thinking through, uh, trying to craft what the vision for a company is, and then at the same time, there were other groups that were interested in uh, starting a company. Um, and so I remember uh, in, in, in January 2013, uh, Emmanuel Charpentier mm-hmm. was in Boston and she reached out to me and we met and we thought that it would be great to be able to do something together. Uh, and then we also um, went out to UC Berkeley um, back uh, then uh, to talk to Berkeley about trying to uh, pull everything together so that we yeah. can maybe build a company together. Yeah. And so there are a lot of different groups that were interested. So as I was working with Third Rock and um, and... Um, uh, the flagship venture and also Polaris venture uh, have been talking with George Church about starting a company as well. 
And so they came to Broad to do diligence on the idea. Um, they wanted to talk with me. And then after talking, I think they realized that it's probably a better idea to put everything together to build one um, one central company um, that has all of the intellectual assets yeah. uh, and, and all of the experts together yeah. so that we can really put all of our minds together to build uh, a phenomenal company. Yeah. And so then... Um, that's I mean, how we began to to put the, the you know, team. These together. are Polaris flagship Third Rock. Third Rock. You, these are your premier builders of biotech, right? right. And uh, I feel like um, being in their hands made the process easier. They, you know, they knew what they were doing. This was yeah. not their first time around. They yeah. know what to do with new technologies. They know how to build companies from the ground up. And they must have been a huge help in this. I mean, they must have oh, they know, were, ushered it along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was it was fantastic. Um, so they um, they had built many companies yeah. before, yeah. and and so they um, have people and they have process in place. Um, so it was it was fantastic working with them, uh, working with Deb and Deb Palinstrand and Agnieszka uh, in the beginning to kind of see how they were thinking about formulating uh, what a company vision is. We can we can formulate a research vision, yeah. But then for a company to to work, yeah. you have to have a product vision, yeah. Um, kind of thinking about that and, and seeing the process they go through, uh, working with them, answering the questions that they have, and then and then brainstorming and, and coming up with a structure around what that concept is. Um, that was uh, a really phenomenal uh, experience. Uh, and then and then when Third Rock, um, be, uh, Third Rock and Polaris and Flagship agreed to work together, uh, that was also a really amazing yeah, thing because yeah. I think before Editas, those three firms have not all worked together. Uh, they have in pairwise fashions, work together on many different companies, but not all three at the same time. Yeah, they, they sort of function as the builder and they bring in some syndicate where right. um, it's sort of just follow on money almost, not follow on, but those are three builders coming together. Yeah, yeah. And, and to see all three, three of the giants in, yeah. in the Boston area to come together. That's exciting. Uh, that was very exciting. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so then we, uh, so then uh, me and George and Jennifer and uh, David Liu and Keith Zhang, then we all teamed together. And that's how Editas was, was launched. Yeah. So there's you founded two companies since then, Ar Arbor mm -hmm. and Beam. Yeah. Right, that's right. Do you do you like founding companies? Um, I think it's very exciting. Um, I think um, I've, I always uh, want to do. Uh, I always have this desire to do something that's useful. Yeah. I think some of it is from my parents and, and them telling me that you should make your life useful um, as you as you um, uh, grow up and, and, and live your life. They used to tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Why? I wonder. I think that's what they believe and that's what they value. So they, they've always told me yeah. that. Um, and that's like perfect for tech transfer, right? That's the whole point of tech yeah. transfer is to yeah. be useful with this research you're yeah. doing. Yeah. 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 And, and I think when you're building a company, uh, there, is, there is a different kind of creativity um, to that. And then also you get to build a team. Yeah. Um, you get to um, bring together other people who share that excitement and energy and also the vision to do something that can make a positive impact in the world. Um, and, and I think that process um, and also continuing to realize that vision, uh, I think it is very exciting. So I want to I ask you, you, you mentioned earlier that the immigrant's life is hard, right? It is. Mm -hmm. uh, did you go back to China much? Um, periodically. My, I still have family in China. Yeah, your grandparents. Yeah, my yeah. grandfather um, is still in Shijiazhuang, uh, so I've gone back to, to visit him. I probably go to China once a year or something like that. Do, how do you? Um, what are your ties like? Do you when you go back? Do you have many memories still, or do you? Um, I mean, from your memories from your yeah. childhood before you came. I do. Um, I have. I have a lot. I still have a lot of memories uh, from the time when I was growing up in China. Yeah. But now, when I go back to China, 
and I look around, I don't recognize anything. Everything's different. Yeah. 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 And there are brand new buildings, um, uh, streets that I used to remember uh, biking down or, or going with my parents to uh, are not there anymore. Uh, and instead, they're replaced with these shiny, um, yeah. tall, uh, brand new buildings and, and large plazas. And uh, it's all very nice, but, uh, but China has changed so much. Yeah. And there's this, you know, there's this big draw from China saying, okay, we are going to do innovative science. We are calling home researchers. We will give you lab space. There's money to be had now. And, and science can be done now in China that could not have been done 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any interest in that? Do, do you feel that sort of like, well, maybe I could do my research there? I think um, there's a lot of exciting stuff that's happening in China. And, and I um, sort of interacted and, and even collaborated with people there. Uh, but I think for now, um, there's still a lot that we, we can do here. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really just focused on, uh, I think you have to do one thing at a time rather yeah. than uh, do too many things and not get anything done. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you this too, because I, I read someplace that you've given out you know, CRISPR samples at something like 2,000 labs around the world, right? This is what's called being like a, a good scientific citizen. You're, you're trying to help propagate this this technology. Yeah, that sort of rubs up against the business side of things, where you get your IP, you lock it down, because without IP, you can't get financing. Without financing, you can't have the development of something else. Like, how do you sort of combine those two things in your own mind? I guess. I think the world. Um, I think the world benefits from when things are open. Um, even in the computer area, um, you can see that open source, which is opposite of what the proprietary software. Uh, uh, business model is yeah. uh, is is very powerful. It has really revolutionized computer science. If it wasn't open for open source, uh, all of the uh, platforms and and um, uh, basic infrastructure for the whole web based economy probably couldn't have taken off the way that it did. Yeah. Um, and I I view um, these foundational technologies like CRISPR in very much the same way. Uh, with web, you don't want to um, lock down Python. You don't want to lock down HTML uh, or JavaScript. Mm-hmm. You want everybody to use them. But then for the specific things that you build with that, that's where you can build further value for, for the economy. And I think with CRISPR is very much the same way. You don't want to lock down CRISPR because CRISPR is so broadly useful. You want as many people to use it and to apply their own creativity to the application of that tool uh, as possible. But then for each of the new things that they build with CRISPR, um, there's tremendous value that, that can be created there. So I, I don't see them being a conflict. And I think uh, by making CRISPR more useful, I think we'll enable um, the broader economy to, yeah. to, to generate more value. It's sort of like you'd like the technology to be used wherever it possibly can. And yeah. the specific products that come out of that technology, that's what needs to be protected or, yeah. or built into something yeah. further. Yeah. yeah, and those are the things that will require further investment. Yeah. Um, and, and their um, you know, further support to be able to continue to develop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. I also wanted to ask you, right? So, you know, as you mentioned, um, there's this feeling that uh, maybe you just you know you got lucky, right? There's you have these moments where like I've done this and this. Am I going to continue to keep doing these things? So the question is, you know, what happens when, as a scientist, you make a huge discovery really early in your career? I mean, how do you handle that? Um, do you feel like you're, you know, you're forever chasing? I mean, it's possible. I mean, I hate to say yeah. it's possible that you have made the biggest discovery of your career already. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So how do you sort of keep Hope yourself? Not. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. I mean, but 
how do you handle that the thought that wow I, I've had a huge breakthrough really early many many people have that breakthrough when they're 55 or 60 I, I don't know I think um, I think it's a very fortunate and lucky position to be in I think um, being able to do something that's um, that's useful for so many people um, also um, gave me the opportunity to interact with a lot more people yeah. a lot earlier on uh, in my career so I really interact with um, people who are in the in the healthcare, um, in the hospitals, patients, uh, all the way to uh, people in the business world who are uh, trying to um, help sort of amplify uh, the the impact of the technology, uh, and all the way to policymakers and so forth. And I think um, that experience um, helped me sort of develop more perspective for what what a technology is and what what the impact of a technology is on society uh, in all these different facets of, of um, what a technology uh, is able to touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it, it helps broaden my perspective and also helps me identify um, uh, that there are many, many more problems that we need to solve. Yeah. And so what I'm really excited about now is um, there are a lot of really important problems and, and can I uh, take what I have learned all the experiences, mistakes, and and um, um, and 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 also useful things that I learned, and apply it um, to solving new problems, bi- new problems, and, bigger problems, yeah, right. etc. Yeah. Do, do you feel like um, you know when you think about your career thus far? I mean, you're not you're not very old. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're doing the best science of your life now? Um, I, I, I I'm very excited about the science that I'm doing. I think I think my science is getting better and better. Yeah. Um, as you, as you said, because you're now collaborating with all these, yeah, 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 and I think collaboration is really, really it's key, really key, uh, because um, diversity, I think, is a phenomenal thing. Um, people have so many different creative ideas, yeah, so many different perspectives, um, looking at it, even when they're looking at the same uh, question and problem, and being able to exchange and and to synergize with those different uh, perspectives and, and creativity. That allows you to do even more, yeah. and so together, I think you can build something that's even more useful and powerful. Group genius, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, I think this is my last question, but somebody I can't remember who, but I was reading an article, and they said that um, they're talking about you, mm-hmm. and they said that uh, it, maybe they'd seen other researchers who, who tested better or something, but mm-hmm. nobody did the work the way that you did it. No, nobody would go out and read everything and comprehensively ingest all the information required to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that's accurate about your own research? Um, I, I try to I try to read as much as I can, uh, and also I try to try to just organize all the different pieces of information I read uh, to to get a clear picture of what I'm looking at. I mean, I think they were saying that you're sort of exhaustive in your research. You will go until you think you've got it all. And does that feel accurate um, to you? I think I think it's important to be complete. You yeah, don't want to, yeah, yeah. You want to. You don't I want mean, to mind you, this is a compliment. He's telling. This is a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do half of something and then not not sort of go all the way. Yeah. Yeah. So you agree, I guess. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you for having me in your office. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. How was that? That is your First Rounders podcast with Feng Zhang. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I definitely did. Thank you to Feng for having me into his office. Thank you, MIT, for giving us the space and the time to get this done. It's very much appreciated. Uh, you know, I think Feng has a reputation as being a nice guy, and he is a nice guy. Uh, I, you know, that's clear. 
He's also, as he said in this podcast, a tinkerer. He, he liked to uh, take things apart when he was a boy. And as I was setting up, he was asking me questions about the equipment. And as soon as we were done, he started uh, breaking down his mic, um, I think because he does like to take things apart and also because he's, he's really nice. So it's great talking to him. Uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, well, we mentioned Jan Vilcek in this podcast. Um, he is in the archives. You can find that linked off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. It was a good conversation with him, great researcher, wonderful man, and um, just a fascinating backstory on top of that. I should say thanks once again to Johns Hopkins University and their Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program. You can find more information about this program by going to enterprise.jhu.edu. Thank you, Johns Hopkins, for supporting us. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music in this podcast. That's very much appreciated. And... Um, I can't think of anything else to say, so that is it. I will talk to you later, and goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.